Hey, thanks for joining us again for another episode of Purity for Life. Coming up, part two of A Leader's Guide to the Sexual Addict. Living in spiritual defeat over a prolonged period of time causes the man to waffle back and forth between an inflated sense of his own spirituality and a feeling of overwhelming hopelessness. If you weren't with us last week, we've created a two-part episode for pastors, lay leaders, counselors, really anyone who wants to help someone else overcome sexual sin. We want to help you get a better understanding of what's going on inside the heart of a typical professing Christian who's involved with sexual sin. Obviously, we can't discuss everything. We're just trying to hit the key features. Sin separates, it corrupts, it blinds, it kills. So the longer a person is giving himself over to sexual sin, the worse things are going to be for him, the more the fruit of all of that is going to show up. You know, So you're, you're going to see a guy who's isolated and lonely. He's plagued by evil desires. Mm-hmm. You know, He has no self-control. He's unable to resist crossing lines into deeper forms of perversion. That's what's coming up. Here we go. If we're going to talk about the profile of a sexual addict in an accurate way, we have to talk about hopelessness, because hopelessness is epidemic with those who have been involved in long-standing habits of sin. So we pulled an interview from our archives along these lines. The interview begins with a clip from Steve Gallagher, and then two of our counselors discuss the issue of hopelessness. Okay, Ken, as we continue to sketch out the profile of a typical sexual addict in the church, we've come to this idea of just feeling hopeless. I know a lot of people are there, and I wanted to start by playing for you the description Pastor Steve gave of this particular characteristic. Living in spiritual defeat over a prolonged period of time causes the man to waffle back and forth between an inflated sense of his own spirituality and a feeling of overwhelming hopelessness. Part of the problem is that for years he has run to books, seminars, and support group meetings in the hope that he can overcome his problems with a minimal amount of effort. His dilemma has been exacerbated because he has gotten his hopes up many times over the years by the exaggerated claims of people offering help. Read this book. It's powerful. This seminar will change your life. He dutifully reads those books and attends those seminars, but finds that nothing has changed. Each promising situation that doesn't bring victory leaves him more cynical. After a while, he even becomes skeptical about the promises held out by Scripture. Ken, Pastor Steve mentioned that people try different kinds of things unsuccessfully to find freedom oftentimes. What kinds of things have you known for people to try in order to get free from sexual sin? Really, the full gamut. I mean, first of all, is just sheer willpower, just trying hard enough. Um, And then, as Pastor Steve mentioned, uh, self-help books, materials, conferences, seminars, uh, support groups, accountability— Uh, different types of therapists and counselors, psychoanalysis, going to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Uh, Internet filters will be another one. If I can just put a filter on the device, 
that'll help me. Uh, even getting rid of a phone or a computer, a laptop, etc. And even going the spiritual right route, praying more, getting more into the Bible. Some guys have even fasted for extended periods, hoping to get free through that, through those efforts. When Christians aren't seeing change and they feel this hopelessness because of their failure, I'm wondering what's really at the root of that, because I think maybe some people are hopeless because they know they've failed God, whereas other people, it's more because they feel like God failed them. So first, how common would you say it is for addicts to feel hopeless in the sense that they have this intense guilt about their failure that's constantly plaguing them. It's very common. And as a matter of fact, the reason why it's there is because they have a real objective guilt. They are living a a lifestyle of sin, so they are guilty before a holy God. And their conscience and the Word of God testifies to this fact that their lifestyle does not line up with the truth that they know to be true from God's Word. Yeah, I imagine it would be very easy to get into that place but you've observed this quite a lot. And what other dynamics would you say kind of feed into that that mentality uh, and reinforce that that guilt getting so strong in someone's life? Well, we're talking about hopelessness. So it's not just guilt, the fact that I'm guilty, but it's like this nagging thing that I'm never going to be out from under this guilt. And of course, uh, when you're living in habitual sin, you're focusing on yourself and what you want, your desires. So they're, they're caught up in their own little world and they're stuck on themselves instead of the solutions, instead of turning to God. And then with that, of course, the enemy uh, of our souls, the devil, will try to feed on that and actually lead someone into uh, not only guilt but feeling condemned that there's no way out of that guilt. And then instead of turning to God, they turn to despair and hopelessness. Yeah, you know, when you're talking about this whole topic of guilt, I mean, we all would say that's a good thing. Someone ought to feel some degree of of guilt about what they've done, but seems like you're talking about it can actually just escalate and keep overwhelming someone to the point where they're paralyzed. Yeah, that's correct. You touched, though, at the end there on people feeling almost— under accusation from the enemy. I I have talked to people like that, um, people who really struggle with this just dark spiritual mindset. They're doubting that God loves them. They even might be having blasphemous thoughts about God and really feeling bad about that. Where does that kind of thing come from? Well, it's definitely from the enemy. Um, You know, you can't rule out the person's uh, own sinful nature, the flesh. Uh, If you're living in sin and God's calling you on it, that you need to live differently and you're rebelling against that, it's going to be natural to have antagonistic thoughts against God, maybe even to the point where it escalates to blasphemous thoughts, accusing God or cursing God. Uh, But ultimately, I believe it's the enemy. And the enemy will do anything he can to keep someone from God and from really knowing the freedom that's found in Christ. All right, then let's flip it around maybe and talk about the other type of person Tell us maybe about the kind of guy that you counsel regarding sexual sin who feels more like God's the one that has failed them. And if they're in that place, why do they feel that way? And where does that end if they keep going down that path? Well, what they typically will say is, 
I've cried out to God, I've prayed, I've done all the right things, yet God still hasn't come through for me. So they blame God that they're still in their addiction. Um, now, of course, this could also be an excuse that they really haven't come to the place where they want to be free from their sin. They still love their sin, and God is really just a scapegoat. Well, God hasn't delivered me, but all along, they've never really let go of their sin, and they're still holding on to it. And this mindset, uh, it could be an excuse, as I said, will lead to basically staying in your sin. You're not repenting. You're not changing. You're actually staying in your sin and eventually maybe deluding yourself to think it's okay. And then the other reaction is if you're blaming God is obviously you can become angry with God, bitter toward God, even hating God or turning away from God because you've tried, you know, to turn to him and he didn't come, you know, he didn't come through for you. So what other recourse do you have? God isn't helping me. I'm going to find help somewhere else. So some of them just give up and just go over to their sin and live a lifestyle of perpetual sin. You're describing a lot of different mindsets, a lot of different places that people come to, but the same result being there, this hopelessness that comes over them for a variety of different reasons. Now, I know that Pastor Steve also mentioned that for these kinds of Christians, they'll often end up even doubting the Scripture and all the promises that are there about change. And I mean, we know that's wrong, but why would you say someone who claims to be a Christian could really get to that place where they're convinced that the answers of Scripture are just not going to apply to them and work for them? I would say a lot of it has to do with uh, guys that have been professing to know uh, Christ, saying they're Christians, but they've been in sin for so many years that an unbelief has settled into their hearts. And a lot of them have, at least on some level, tried, you know, to hold on to the promises of God's Word, maybe memorize Scripture, quote Scripture, stand upon it, but yet they're still bound to their sin. And the reason they're bound is because they're trying to deal with the symptoms, and they've never really dealt with the roots. And ultimately, we find these guys have never really surrendered their lives to God and they're trying to be free from their sin without really allowing God to do that work in their lives. And the reason why that unbelief is there is because they've been really trying to do things themselves, and that lends itself to failure because you're not going to save yourself. I mean, it's impossible for someone ultimately to free themselves from their sin. Okay, so you're saying there's been something missing in their spiritual journey, uh, even if they've tried different important steps like seeking God to a degree or whatever. Do you think they see that? Do some of them sense that there's something still missing or oftentimes not? A lot of them do, but a lot of them don't. And they're really, they've been stuck for so many years and they've been living in this darkness because you can't live in habitual sin and not at some level be in darkness and they don't see a way out. And some of them have gone to the point where they don't really even see that they have much of a problem. They've minimized it to the point where it's one small little problem when actually their whole lives are in disarray. You know, that's interesting. We're kind of going on a tangent here, but what you're saying, on the one hand, they're hopeless because they feel like this is overwhelming their life. But yet at this very same time, you're saying you're having to deal with the fact that they're missing the rest of their life and thinking that this is the only issue that they have. How do you account for that 
paradox in their thinking there. There's a lot of different factors. Uh, one of them is they may not really understand uh, what true Christianity is and what God is really calling them to. And they've never really had that deep heart change where their whole life has been turned over to the Lord, where they've experienced true repentance, true brokenness for their sin. And God has been able to revamp their life from the inside out. So all they've been doing is what our culture basically teaches us to deal with the symptoms. And they've never dealt with the fundamental roots of their sin, which is their own pride and selfishness. Well, I know we can't get too far into this topic, but I did at least want to touch on the area of psychology, since uh, I'm sure a lot of guys come to you who are holding on to various psychological concepts. For you, where does psychological thinking fit into this topic of hopelessness? Well, really, I would say psychology, as well as the other uh, means people have used uh, to seek freedom, actually foster hopelessness. And the reason why I say that is psychology tends to promote a victim mentality, number one. Uh, It's someone else's fault, or you're a victim of your environment, other people. And the other thing is once an addict, always an addict. So they may be great at identifying problems and telling you what's wrong with you, but they never deal with the root issues and they don't offer any true solutions for lasting change. There's no hope. There's no way out. Once a sexual addict, always a sexual addict. And that fosters extreme hopelessness in the end. All right. Well, before we wrap this up, any other things you want to touch on that you have found to contribute to this hopelessness, things you would point out to leaders who are listening and that need to be looking for the problems that are in those they counsel? One of the interesting things I've found is a lot of guys that seem to be the model example of a good Christian have given themselves to ministry. They're involved in all types of activities in church, and it seems like they're doing great spiritually. But what they're really doing is, meanwhile, they have a secret double life, and they're living in sin, and they're somehow justifying their sin or thinking they're going to overcome their sin if they just throw themselves into ministry or some guys maybe into work and give themselves to that, thinking they're going to find freedom, but that freedom still eludes them. For our next segment, Pastor Ed Book is back with us as we continue to look at the profile of a sex addict. In this interview, I want to dig a little bit deeper and look at the fact that many, many Christian men are committing these sexual sins without anyone else knowing it, which can be extremely confusing for other people when these sins come out into the open. I actually think that this is probably the most bewildering aspect for loved ones to deal with because they feel like they don't even know this person really anymore. So Pastor Ed, how does a person get to a place where they are willingly deceiving everyone in their lives? I mean, (laughs) where does that begin? (laughs) Yeah, well, Nate, very few people actually begin a double life as a deliberate choice. You know, it's not something that they've thought through or prepared for and then set out to execute this plan to accomplish it. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, almost everyone enters into a double life very gradually and very subtly. Uh, It's so subtle that they can actually be living it for years and not even be aware that they're doing it themselves Mm. many times. 
I would say, you know, a double life almost always develops because the person is afraid of disappointing people though. They want people to think well of them, people close to them, their parents, their wives, children, you know, all those people have expectations for them and they don't want to disappoint them. So most men are rightfully ashamed of their sexual sin, mm. but instead of that shame steering them away from it, like it should have, they often make the mistake of just keeping it secret then. And it's those efforts to indulge their sin, but keep it hidden that forces them in a sense into developing this double life, into getting good at having two different lives that they're living and keeping them separated. And, you know, like a, a lot of men have just gotten caught up in, in a sin cycle where they sin, they confess it, they sin, they confess it. And, you know, Nate, after a while, they just don't want to disappoint others by letting them know that, well, you know what, I'm actually still in sin, you know. Right. Uh, others have expected victory by now in their life and the man himself probably expected to overcome his sexual sin by now. And when that doesn't happen, you know, again, they start to go underground with it and and uh, the truth about their situation gets hidden and it leads them right into this double life. So I would say at Pure Life Ministries, we get a significant percentage of men coming into the program who are involved in ministry of some sort. And that's another thing, you know, that just lends itself to this. Uh, some of them were deacons or elders. Uh, some are on the worship team, some on the mission field. You know, many were actually pastors or worship leaders, you know, employed by the church. And this double life is a common theme for guys like that because they were active in ministry and the people around them weren't aware, of course, that they were in sexual sin. They're up there preaching on Sundays or leading the worship team on Sundays, doing whatever it is, you know, that they're tasked to do in the church on a regular basis. But over time, they've allowed a back door open in their life. Something, you know, has literally gone awry in their spiritual life mm -hmm. and they've begun then to live this double life. And that dark side increases over time and has eventually become like the dominant theme mm -hmm. really in their life. Mm -hmm. So many men involved in ministry just end up feeling stuck, uh, paralyzed, unable to break free from sin on their own and yet unwilling to pay the price of coming into the light with it. And so, Nate, the bottom line I think is that living a double life just seems like the best option to people. It's mm -hmm. like it's the lesser of several bad options <laughs> that they can see and that's why so many choose it. Mm. Yeah, you know, it just kind of makes me think that if – a pastor is sitting with someone in the counseling office and this person is coming forward with some kind of a confession or maybe even this is a, I would say a forced confession in a way because it's sin has been exposed, um, then that pastor needs to spend quite a bit of time with this person mm -hmm. because Absolutely. this could have started years before or mm -hmm. decades before. and he might want to just um, say, well, all right, brother, we need to get a filter on the phone or we need to do this, this, and this, kind of like corrective measures. But like you said, there are things that started going awry years and years ago that have to be corrected mm -hmm. at the heart level. Right. Um, what do you see happening to people who are in sexual sin over long periods of time. Like if a pastor is saying, okay, I've got a guy who's been in sin for 20 years or 25 years, what 
what is happening inside of that man that that pastor needs to be aware of? Yeah, that's a, a good question, Nate. And, you know, I think one of the things that would help pastors in, in general is to step back for a minute and forget the individual they're looking at or dealing with for a second and just remind themselves, what does the Bible say about sin? What does sin do to a person because I think biblically we can see it does a number of things and all of them have to be true in that man's life mm. regardless of how he appears, how closely you know they've had a friendship or you know hung out together or had lunches together or whatever he's saying or portraying on the surface. Sin has done a number of things in him that the pastor should just automatically know and be aware of and, and bring to mind here. And so I would give you a few things. Uh, sin separates. It destroys fellowship. You, you know, that that's fellowship with both God. So his relationship with God is seriously off kilter. <laughs> and it destroys fellowship with other people. You know, that's right there in First John. We, we read about that sort of thing. And uh, so his relationships become increasingly shallow and eventually non-existent, of course. Um, another thing that we know about sin from the Bible is that it corrupts, uh, right? Mm. We, we understand we already are born with a sin nature, a corrupt nature to begin with. But when we give over to sin, all it's doing is deepening that corruption. Yeah. You know, it becomes like a cancer, you know, and sin starts eating away at the moral boundaries and convictions that a person once held. <laughs> um, and we end up then giving over to darker forms of sin. We, we end up entangled and have no recognizable way out sometimes, you know. So we know that about sin. Uh, a third thing, we know that sin blinds us. So we don't recognize the impact, the cost, or the consequences of our sin. We don't see and recognize how our sin is actually hurting other people. And eventually, we don't even recognize sin as sin, right? <laughs> and then fourthly, we know that sin kills it kills off hope. It makes the future look very dark and mm. bleak. Uh, you know, depression and despair take root. Uh, it, sin kills motivation so that, you know, a person literally starts to abandon their responsibilities and any plans or good works they once felt called to, you know, all of that just kind of falls by the wayside. So, you know, there might even be some other things we could add to that list, but I think that gives us a pretty good idea that, you know, sin separates, it corrupts, it blinds, it kills. So the longer a person is giving himself over to sexual sin, the worse things are going to be for him, the more the fruit of all of that is going to show up, you know. So you're, you're going to see a guy who's isolated and lonely. He's plagued by evil desires. Mm -hmm. You know, he has no self-control. He's unable to resist crossing lines into deeper forms of perversion. He's blind to the real source of his problems even and increasingly gets angrier and, and, and bitter about things most likely. Mm -hmm. And he's increasingly hopeless and depressed and un motivated and irresponsible. So even if he is masking all of that by presenting some sort of an image to others, all of that is still going on in his inside world. You can be certain of that. Mm. And, you know, maybe worst of all is like his trajectory. Things aren't looking up for this guy at all. You know, they're clearly going from bad to worse. And even though it might be happening little by little, things are assuredly getting worse and worse for him. So 
in order for the guy to, you know, to cope with what's really going on, he has to lie to himself mm. a lot, you know, has to suppress his own conscience. And frankly, Nate, he probably needs to keep medicating himself either with actual, you know, antidepressant or anti-anxiety medications or with more and more of his sin. Uh, that's a, another way that they, uh, you know, medicate themselves mm -hmm. is through their, their sexual sin. And I would just say, you know, in case someone happens to be listening and, and recognizes himself in that kind of description that I just gave, Nate, can I just say that there is still hope, right? Yeah. There is a way out. Repentance is the first step up and out of that dungeon they've been living in. Yep. But God is willing and able to forgive and deliver and set them free if they'll turn to him. Hmm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> as you describe that, picture of a person who's in sexual sin. I think a lot of pastors or wives or maybe parents who are listening and they love this person, they're watching their lives kind of unravel. At some level, they're just like, just stop. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you want to stop and it's destroying you. Why don't you just stop? What would you say are the most common reasons a person doesn't or isn't able to or how would you put that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question too, you know, because that is a an easy question to ask when you're not the one involved, you know, in the mm -hmm. sin. You look at it and it's got all this horrible stuff attached to it. Yeah, like can't you see that? Just stop, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, but let me give you a few reasons why he probably isn't doing that or can't do that. Uh, one is that, you know, he he refuses to bring his sin into the light most of the time, at least the full extent of it even, you know. He's been living in secrecy and shame and he is afraid of the consequences mm -hmm. uh, uh, that will follow him if he exposes his sin, you know, the consequences that will arise from that. And in some cases, Nate, that fear that he's in can actually overwhelm him and lead to a degree of paranoia even in his relationships with others. Uh, he thinks people are mocking him or talking about him, you know, convinced that everyone is against him. And all of this just makes it harder and harder for him to bring his sin into the light. And really, regardless of whether his fear has gotten to that point or not, where he's dealing with some sort of paranoia over it all, the thing that every person in sexual sin needs to remember is that everything is going to just keep getting worse and worse as long as he delays coming into the light yeah. and reaching out you know, for the help, right? Uh, the shame and misery is getting worse. The exhaustion and despair are deepening. You know, that's just going to continue. And I'm reminded of the verse in scripture that kind of warns us, you know, be sure your sin will find you out. You know, sooner or later, his sin is, is almost certainly going to get exposed. And it's always better to do it voluntarily yeah. on your own and much better to do it sooner rather than later. But, the, you know, there are a couple other reasons why a man can't just uh, stop indulging in the sexual sin. And I think another one is because he refuses to deal with it radically. Um, he literally can't stop because he's in real bondage to his sin. He's given himself over to it for so long, it's rewired his inside world and created a dependency and an idolatry, we would call it. It's something that he loves and worships in his heart. And undoing all of that requires a 
you know, a sustained investment of time, energy <laughs> to overcome. There is no quick fix here for the kind of bondage that he's in. But many men just aren't willing to get radical in dealing mm -hmm. with their sin, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so a final reason that I could offer is that he hasn't found anything better to take its place either. Mm. You know, in addition to the tremendous feeling of pleasure he gets from his sexual sin, Many men are also using it, Nate, as a kind of escape or relief. You know, it's a form of self-medicating his stress or fear or worry or something, you know, along those lines. And it's been his go-to response for mm. a moment of quick and easy relief for so long, he just can't seem to give it up. You know, nothing else actually works quite as well as, as a sin. And of course, that relief that he's after is really just an illusion anyway. You know, he might get a moment of escape. But the truth is that indulging in sexual sin is only aggravating the stress, aggravating the fear or anxiety or whatever it is that he's trying to escape from. You know, it's just making it worse. But it's going to take him some time to learn the biblical methods, you know, to actually deal with those kinds of issues and then train himself to choose that path instead of his sin. And ultimately, he needs to develop a relationship with Jesus that surpasses anything sexual mm. sin has ever provided for him. That's going to be the key to the lasting victory in his life. He's going to have to find something better to take yeah. its place. So I was thinking about how to end this episode, and I guess that I would just like to say a few things to any pastors or leaders who might be listening. We've covered a fair amount of ground in these two shows, and I think that it would be beneficial to listen to both of these again, maybe a couple of times, take notes about what you've heard, because I would guess someday soon you're going to be sitting in an office dealing with someone in sexual sin. And our hope is that what you've heard will help you in your ministry to that individual. I also want to say this. Pure Life Ministries is here to come alongside of you, the local pastor, in your ministry to your congregation. We've got a lot of free resources on our website covering a lot of topics. We've also got books and audiobooks and Purity for Life podcast. Plus, if you feel the need to refer someone to us, we have several biblical counseling programs that we'd like for you to be aware of. You can get all of that information at purelifeministries.org. And lastly, maybe you're not a pastor, but you know of a pastor that needs to hear about our ministry. If that's the case, maybe these two shows would be a great way to introduce us to him. Just a thought. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.